Well, how are we doing, church? Doing good? Good. You look great. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25. Uh, we always put the, well, we almost always put the text in the bulletin, but today we're going to hop around just a little bit, so I'd love for you to actually bring a Bible, open it up. Um, if you don't have one, you can reach out and grab the one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Or if it looks like um, Shakespeare wrote your Bible and you can't understand what it's talking about, then grab one of these. It's an ESV. It's written in a translation that, that you can understand. Um, uh, we did, if you're coming off of spring break, I hope for you, hopefully you're ready for your kids to go back to school tomorrow, praise the Lord. Um, we, went to, we went to Disney on spring break, and so I've got a lot of material for next week's sermon on gluttony, all right, a lot. But we'll save that for next week. Today we're going to talk about sloth. Sloth, um, it obviously means lazy, and it is an animal. Uh, sloth is a, there's a three-toed and a two-toed sloth, and it lives in South America. It's a kind of smaller animal. And it does climb it up and down trees, and it only goes down the tree one time a week. That's how lazy it is. It wakes up in the morning, it only eats what it can reach, you know, around it, and it just kind of sits there and eats, and then, and then climbs down the tree one time a week to use the bathroom. That's it, unless it's raining. Then it just, then it doesn't climb down the tree. It just goes in the rain. It's like an eight-year-old in the pool. You need to go to the bathroom? Why would I need to go to the bathroom? I'm in it right now. You know, that kind of thing. So, so obviously that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, a sloth is lazy. And, and I don't know if you ever thought about laziness or slothfulness as a sin, but it's listed as one of the seven deadly sins. It's not listed in the Bible. There's not like a seven deadly sin section. Um, all sin is deadly, but but laziness, uh, as I began to prepare on how do you teach on laziness, I was just thinking, we are probably the busiest generation ever, you know? I mean, calendars are full, a lot's getting done, we're very productive, we're very proactive. And um, I know there are lazy, slothful people, I just don't know them personally. Most of the people that I hang out with aren't on that slothful, lazy side. If they are, then we won't be friends, and so I don't hang out with you, so I don't know you, all right? And I just know, if you're slothful, you don't come to 1122, all right? That's not you. You're at some other church, so God bless your ministry. Here, we're productive and proactive, and we get stuff done, but I know this, that that we might not be slothfully lazy, but I think there's a lot of us that are selectively lazy, that we are busy with things that are comfortable and maybe don't really matter, and we can be lazy with things that require faith. And so, uh, what we want to do is unpack for you Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. But, in order for me to do that, I want to, uh, you've got to understand Matthew 25 in its context. So, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to back up one page and go to Matthew chapter 24. Because what happens here is Jesus, when he gets to 25, he's actually answering one question from chapter 24. And it kind of goes this way. So, Jesus in 24, 1 and 2, he predicts the destruction of the temple. And it has two meanings. The temple does get destroyed in 70 AD, but he's really talking about his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven and return. So he's talking about that he's going to go to the cross, die for our sins, be resurrected, go to the right hand of the Father, and one day come back and make all things new. That's what he's talking about with this temple talk. Um, and so in 24.3, the disciples asked this question. It says, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will the sign of your coming and of the close of the age be? And Jesus answered them. And if you've got a, you know, if you're a high end like me and you've got the red letter edition, for the next two chapters, it's all red letters, which means Jesus is doing all the talking. So he's answering that question, what's the end of the world going to be like? And he starts off talking about all these signs of the end of the world. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and all this kind of stuff. And then he gets into this thing called the abomination of desolation. And if you're into that, God bless your ministry, all right? He talks about, he quotes Daniel and talking about things that will happen in the Holy of Holies in the temple, etc. And then 
what he knows can happen to us is that people can get obsessed over the signs and the wonders at the end of the age. And so at the end of 24, he says, now, before you get obsessed with all this stuff, just, just know this, don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out when I'm going to return because the end of 24 lets us know, I, Jesus would say, I don't even know when I'm going to return. So if I don't know when I'm coming back, there's no way you or your left behind books or any of that stuff can know when I'm coming back. And then what he's going to do is going to tell three parables that, that explain to us, here's what you should be doing as you're waiting my return. Now, I am coming back because I was crucified and resurrected since I predicted that and that happened. You can trust that I'm going to come back. But in the meantime, you don't have to spend a whole lot of time on the signs and wonders that show when I'm coming back. All right. And so if you have a church background and you're kind of into that stuff, I just want to tell you now that I am never going to spend a whole lot of time talking about end times prophecy. We're just not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. We're going to spend a whole lot of time talking about what you do while we're awaiting his return, but we're not going to talk a lot about the abomination of desolation and what this president means and what that leader means, and we're not going to do that. And, and here's part of the reason why. Most of the people that I know that want to spend a lot of time talking about that stuff are not people that I want to spend a lot of time with. Can I just be honest? Like, there's a lady in my family, and she always wants to talk about, hey, talk to me about the end times prophecy. And I think, oh, hey, look, there's Jesus. And then I just kind of scoot away. Because she kind of weirds me out. And so, a part of what Jesus is doing here is saying, is that stuff important? Ah, oh, it's, it's so important. And so, if you want to talk about post-tribulation or pre-tribulation or pan-tribulation or amillennialism or all that stuff, I can't even say it. Then, then and if you, if you don't know what that stuff means, then... Praise God, we're a church for all people. And if you do know what all that stuff means, just keep it to yourself or talk about it over lunch. But here at 11.22, we're gonna spend the majority of our time talking about um, uh, not those signs and waters, wonders that are to come, but, but Jesus' specific instructions on what you and I are supposed to be doing in the meantime. So then we get to, we get to chapter 25. And in chapter 25, Jesus tells three stories or three parables. The first one it's called the parable of the 10 virgins. And essentially what he says is, don't miss out on salvation. That's what the point of the parable is. That there will be a day when Jesus returns. And then it's too late to surrender your life to Jesus. All right? That every knee will bow. When he returns, you'll bow or you'll bow. And if you choose to bow your knee to him on your own now, then congratulations, then you're saved and, and you'll, you'll spend forever with him. But there will come a day where it's too late, and essentially the point of the parable is you'll miss the party. So don't miss the party that you've got to surrender your life to Christ now before he returns. So that's the first parable. The second one is, and then after you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, don't waste what he's given you. That's where we're going to spend all of our time. And then he moves into the last section with the sheep and the goats, and he talks about, so what you need to be doing, what we need to be doing between now and the day Jesus returns, is we invest everything that he has given us into the things that are important to him. And what's important to him, what's a demonstration that we know him, is that we serve the least of these. And so... Right now, we're going to unpack that middle, that, that middle parable. The, it's called the parable of the talent. So Matthew chapter 25, and it'll begin in verse 14. And I wanted to use this text because it illustrates in such a clear way from Jesus that you and I might not be slothfully lazy, but oftentimes we can be selectively lazy. Here we go, 14, 25, 14. For it will be like a man going on a long journey. And the it there is the end of times, all right, when we stand accountable before God. So it would be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted to them property. 
Part of what Jesus wants us to know from the very beginning is this, is that um, everything that you have and everything that I have is on loan from God. That you're not really an owner of anything. You're a steward or, or a manager of whatever God has put in your trust for a short time period. And no matter what you're in charge of now, you won't be char- in charge of forever. Like your family, your money, your marriage, all of those kinds of things are temporary. That, that God has put you in charge of those things in this life, but they're really his. That every good and perfect gift is from above. And that you have been, you have been given essentially potential. That God has given you certain things, certain, thing, certain gifts, certain um, amounts of finances, relationships, leverage, whatever it may be. And, it, and it's like he's put potential in you and it's a gift from God. So the manager calls his servants and he trusts to them his property. Verse 15. To one he gave five talents. Now a talent... Is a, was a measure of money in the first century. And one talent was 20 years wage. So in our economy, one talent's about a million dollars. So this guy gets five million dollars. So to one, he gave five talents or five million dollars. To another, two. To another, one. To each according to his ability. That's important. According to his ability. So God is not into socialism or, or communism. God's idea is not we're going to take all the talents, put it in a pool, and then divide them up equally. That he gives to people according to their ability. Now, there's a few things that are important. One is the English word talent has a double entendre, which is important in this parable. Because it literally is a measure of money, but a part of what Jesus is talking about here is what we think of when we think about talent. That we think about gifts or abilities or aptitudes or likes or things that you are just good at. You know how there are things that you're just really good at and you don't even have to try that hard. Like for instance, um, no matter how hard I try, I cannot clean the kitchen to the level that equals clean in our home, right? Even if I clean, I mean, I really try to clean. Gretchen comes in and goes, thanks for straightening. And then she cleans. So I just don't have that talent. And so there are other things I can do and it's just God's gifted me that way. So as we talk about this parable and as Jesus teaches on this parable, both of these things are really true. He's talking about money, but he's also talking about whatever gifts, talents, abilities, aptitudes that God has given you. Now, again, this is important, that he gave to each one according to their ability. So check this out. Everything that you have that's on loan from God, that God believes that you can do with it what you were instructed, called to do with it. That God actually believes that when he gave you whatever it is, finances, relationships, leverage, a job, your kids, your parents, whatever it is, whatever potential he has put into you, he gave that to you believing that by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus, and in a relationship with your heavenly father, that you will have what it takes, not of your own ability, but through him, you have what it takes to glorify him with what he has given you. John Maxwell says it this way. He says that your potential is God's gift to you. And then what you do with that potential is your gift back to God. Now, something's very important as we, as we know that God's not, in, God's not fair, God's not a socialist, God's not a communist, that um, it, it's a mistake, though, if you begin to compare yourself to other people and what God's given them. So you'll see the two-talent guy doesn't compare himself to anybody else. And there's a lot of problems with comparing. We'll talk about it a lot on the sixth week when we talk about envy, but I want to give you a couple of things. Um, when you compare yourself, first and foremost, when you compare to somebody else, then it's really an accusation against God. God, you don't know what you're doing. You see, I know me better than you know me, and if I were you, I would have given me more. 
And God would go, no, 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 I'm giving to you according to your ability. I know you better than you know you. The other thing when we compare is we compare what we know about ourselves to what we don't know about other people. Like we typically compare our B-roll to their highlight reel, right? And so when you compare yourself to other people, it's always a lose-lose proposition. Because again, you compare what you know of yourself to what you don't know of them. And when you compare, there's only two things that can happen. If you've got the two talents and you compare yourself to the five talents, you might beat yourself up and think you're less than who God created you to be. That is not the voice of the Heavenly Father. The other option is, is you puff yourself up full of pride, saying, well, but I'm better than the guy with the one talent. And it is a lose-lose situation. And so you've got to be okay with who God created you to be and not compare. Because again, you compare what you know of yourself, your B-roll, with everybody else's highlights. And so I know this to be true. Um, some, sometimes I meet some of you, you know, at the end of a service or whatever, and the only thing you know about me is this 55 minutes a week. That's it. And you'll come and say some very wonderful things to me, and I believe them, and I thank you so much, and they are so encouraging to me. But it's always interesting when, like, a family member of mine is standing right next to me when you're talking about how amazing I am. So then I, then I just know, oh, you don't really know me. All you know is my best, because I promise you this is the best hour of my whole week, all right? And some of you, we haven't even met in real life, right? I'm just two-dimensional to you. So if I ever get to meet you, that's it. And I remember one time after a church service, my brother was with me, and and somebody figured out that he was my brother, and they said to him, they said, you're his brother? And he's like, "Uh uh-huh. What was it like growing up with Pastor Joby? (laughs) And I was like, so what did you say? He's like, well, I threw up a little at first, and then I just said, he was very spiritual. So... Not at all. So in this parable, what happens is the master gathers his servants together, five talents, two talents, one talent, and then he leaves, then he goes away. Verse 16. Now, he who had received the five talents went at once, underline those words, at once. He went at once, and he traded with them, and he made five talents more. So this guy is not lazy. This guy is not slothful. This guy doesn't just get his money and start counting his blessings, but he gets to work. And we're going to find out later that what he does with the five talents is exactly in line with what the master would do with the five talents. He's going to invest them. He's going to risk it all. He's going to, in faith, try to invest this money to make more money, and he doubles his money. So at once, he trades them. Verse 17, so also... He who had the two talents made two talents more. This guy does the exact same thing. He doesn't waste his time. He doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. Why do I only get two talents and he's got five talents? If I had $5 million, sure, I could go out and make $5 million more. But what can you do with $2 million? No. He was grateful for whatever it was that he had. It wasn't the most, but it wasn't the least. He was right in the middle. And he did with it what he thought the master would have done. So he's not a lazy guy. Verse 18, but... He who had received the one talent. Now, again, that's $1 million, all right? But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, this is important. He got busy, but we're going to find out a little later that he was lazy. Now, if you were just watching this guy, and two guys run to the stock market to invest their money, and one guy runs to the backyard to start digging a hole, you wouldn't look at the guy digging the hole and think, well, man, you're lazy. No, why? Because he looks busy. I mean, it takes a lot of work to dig a hole. 
And he's got to dig a big old hole, and he gets right to it. So sometimes laziness isn't about busyness, but laziness is about a misuse of the talents that God has entrusted unto you. Verse 18. Oh, 19. Now, after a long time, that's important. It's important in the fact that Jesus was talking about the end of the world, but it's also important when it talks about um, misusing the gifts that God has given you. Now, after a long time, time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them two very important things one sometimes it takes a long time for your laziness to to really manifest itself and show up you know you can be lazy in your hygiene and you'll be okay for a few days like if you take that college freshman shower you know brush your teeth and axe body spray and be like hey i'm good a little febreze and then you think you're all right that's okay for a little while but eventually that D.O. turns into B.O. and everybody realizes you've been lazy in your hygiene, all right? You can be lazy physically for a little while, skip a few workouts, you know, neglect sleep, those kind of things for a little while. But after a long time, it begins to manifest itself. So at first, the guy with the one talent, he probably thinks, I'm fine. But the master shows back up to settle accounts. And remember, Jesus is talking about the end of the world here. So every single one of us, Regardless of what you believe, you know what you believe impacts reality zero, right? So every single one of us one day will stand before our God and our maker and we will be held accountable. First of all, we'll be held accountable for our sin. And you can take a substitutionary atonement by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ and he'll pay for your sin. Or you'll be held accountable for your sin and you pay for for yourself and you have to be eternally separated from God. But the Bible also talks about another judgment where we will be accountable for every word we speak and everything that we do. And so this is what's happening here, that he is being held accountable. And so you got three guys that are going to be held accountable here, verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward. Can you imagine what the five-talent guy felt like? When the word gets out, hey, the manager's back. You know what the five-talent guy was thinking? Get out of the way. I want to be first in line. And he's up front. I'll go first. I'll go first. Hey, welcome back. You ever been that way, like your boss has been out of town, and you closed the biggest deal in your company's history, and when the boss gets back from vacation, what are you doing? You've got his coffee mug in his office going, hey, tell me about your trip. Ask me about my week. That's what you're doing, because you want to be, you want to bring him good news. You want to give him news that's going to please him, or your kids will do that. If your kids ever get something right, they're just waiting for you at the door with their test grade or whatever it is. That's the five-talent guy, and here's what he says, and he who'd received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here I have made five talents more. So you see what he says here. You see how he starts. He doesn't take credit. He starts this way. God, because he's talking about God here. He said, God, thank you for everything that you've given me. I could have never done it without you. I didn't have any money at all, and you entrusted me with five million dollars. And because you entrusted me with that $5 million, those five talents, I didn't run and hide them, but I went out and in faith, I risked them all. And the reason is because I know you and I know your character and I know your heart and I know what you would have done with them. You would have invested them and made more. And so that's what I've done. And so I can't take credit for any of it, but in your grace and in your mercy and in your love, you didn't need me. I mean, you've got all kind of money. You're giving out millions of dollars before you go on a trip. You didn't need me, and yet you would invite me to come along and even be able to play with you. God, I'm so appreciative. Master, I'm so appreciative. So because of what you have given me, that you put this potential in me, you thought I had what it takes to do with these talents. 
And so I did it. I went for it. And so my fulfilled potential is, is my gift back unto you. And then look at the response, verse 21. And his master said to him, well done. Underline the word done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, which by the way, in God's economy, five million is a little. Can you believe that? He says, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now look what he says here. He says, well done. We serve a God of action. We serve a a, a God of of getting stuff done. He doesn't say, well-intentioned, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, great plan that you never put to action, well thought out, good and faithful servant. Yeah, master, here's the plan I was gonna, I never got around to actually doing it, but here's what I thought I was gonna do with it. No, he says, well done. He doesn't even say, well prayed over. Hey, I love the way you took the five talents, gathered them together and just prayed over them, but never did anything with it. That, that God is a God of action and application, not just inspiration and, and intention. See, um, there's, a, there's a great verse over in James chapter 4 I want to share with you. Because intention doesn't change anything. You know that, right? Every one of you with an unused piece of workout equipment in your house know this to be true. You remember your intentions when you went to go buy that piece of equipment? I mean, you went in to play it against sports, and you're like, there it is. Or if you really are like, I ain't getting on nobody's sweat. I'm getting my own sweat. And you got your own piece of equipment. Do you remember your intentions? You were like, you set it up in your bedroom or your own little workout room. And you're like, I'm going to work out. And you got it at the brochure. And you're like, man, that's exactly, I'm going to look like this lady in like six weeks. I'm going to do this. And you did it twice. And then you're like, I am not doing that anymore. And now, today, right now, that, that gr- those great intentions with that piece of workout of equipment, you've got, you've got laundry hanging over it drying right now. And what is it doing for your waistline right now? Your intentions are meaningless. Like you've never walked in church and people be like, girl, you look good. What have you been doing? Like, I bought an exercise bike. You've been riding it? No, I just got it, put it in my living room, and now boom, never. It's application that makes a difference. So James the brother of Jesus. Do you guys realize that? You know James had a brother? Wrote a book in the Bible called James. Wasn't very creative, but he was very direct, all right? He, by the way, if you're kind of on the fence in, in regards to Christianity, I understand, but a compelling argument for me is this, is that James, the brother of Jesus, later in life, surrendered his life to the lordship of his brother. Who has a brother? If you got a brother, raise your hand. Okay, I got a brother, all right? So imagine this. Can you imagine trusting your brother as Lord? Like, I got a brother. And if he were to come to me and say, hey, Joby, um, behold. I'm the spotless Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. I go, well, actually, um, you helped me participate in a lot of my sin early on, so I don't think you get to be the Lord. But James thought Jesus, his brother, was who he claimed to be. So anyway, he writes this book, writes this letter. And in James 1, 22 and following, listen to these words. This is about application and not just intention. He says, but be doers of the word of God and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Do you know some of you that show up here to church week after week after week are deceiving yourself? Do you realize that? That you show up here and you're hearers of the word and you might even be emotionally stirred and you sing the song and raise your hand and take notes and, and you know, moo at the good parts and... 
Say something to your neighbor. Oh, that's really good. I'm going to get my mom to listen to that. Whatever it was. But if you don't walk out of this door and do something about it, you're as useful as that unused piece of gym equipment in your bedroom. It's just not going to make any difference. And so James, the brother of Jesus, says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The illustration that James uses is this, is that if you hear the word or if God has given you a bunch of talents and you don't do anything with them, then you're deceiving yourself. It'd be like doing what every single one of us did this morning. Or if you're 522, you could do this at like 4 o'clock this afternoon. But you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror. And you know what you did when you looked in the mirror? The first thing you identified is there's a problem. Didn't you? When you woke up this morning, you looked and went, oh man, something has to be done about this current situation before I leave the house. This is the illustration that James is using. The second thing you did when you looked in the mirror is you took accountability for the problem. You took responsibility for the situation. You didn't blame anything else. None of you looked in the mirror and was like, oh my goodness, I got to get new pillows. Look what the pillows are doing to my hair and face. This is unacceptable. Honey, we got to get new pillows. No, you realize the only person that can straighten this out, I got to do something different. And then you stood in the mirror for a certain period of time. You know how long you stood in the mirror? You stood there doing stuff. Here's how long, every single one of us. You stood there as long as it took for you to feel okay about walking away and making that thing better. That you stood there and it started one way and then when you got to the place where you were ready to go out in public and then that's where you left. Now, for some of us, it was just seconds. For me, I mean, what am I gonna do, right? This is it, I wake up, this is it. So I just brush my teeth and I'm still there and I go. For some of you, men and women, quite honestly, in the world we live in, you were there for a long time gelling it and straightening it and curling it and you know especially you girls if it was straight trying to make it curly if it was curly trying to make it straight just trust jesus will already gave you okay but you were doing it and making it up and putting stuff on and all that but what you did is that you did whatever it took to fix the problem and then and then you showed up here to church now here's the thing if you were to neglect that if you were to neglect that for long enough we would get concerned about you I mean, if day after day after day, you looked in the mirror and you obviously saw there was a problem and then you showed up here, it wouldn't take long and we would go, hey, are you feeling okay? Yeah, why do you ask? I'm just saying, you know, you're kind of puffy and crazy and I mean, did you, are you sleeping indoors? Are you okay? I looked for your name on the needs board and I didn't see it, but I've really been, you know, my group's been praying for you. What's going on? And if you were to answer, oh, this, all of this nonsense, oh, I realize it. Yeah, I looked in the mirror. See, you don't get any credit for just looking in the mirror. You get credit for what you've done. And so, it, I know this would be creepy, but if I were in, the, if we were all in your bathroom this morning when you woke up and you identified, uh-oh, we got some work to do here before we go out in public. If we were to get to see you then and then see you walk in the door now, you know what we would all say to you? We'd say, well done. Good and faithful servant. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about here in the parable of the talents. That this, this guy with the five talents, not well-intentioned, not well prayed over. Intentions are important. Belief's super important. Prayer's really important. But well done. Good job getting to work 
on what God and the potential that God has put in you. Now, I got to point this out because I don't want anybody to get confused. The gospel is not if you do good things, then he tells you, well done, good and faithful servant. The gospel is not that we are saved by good works, but we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by the, great, the good work that Christ did on the cross on our behalf. But when you believe that, when he's your Lord, when you love him, then your life begins to reflect that. And you're not saved by good works, but you are saved to good works. And that's a very important distinction, and you can't miss that. Verse 22. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. Verse 23. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, this is so very important, so very important, that the two-talent guy gets the same blessing, the same grade as the five-talent guy. That the two-talent guy didn't compare himself to the five-talent guy. He just did everything he could do with what God had given to him. And then how did God judge him? God did not judge him on bottom line, but on fulfilled potential. And the worst thing that you can do, one of the worst things that you could do, one of the gravest things that you could do to defame the name and the image of God is try to be anybody but who God created you to be. That God made you, that God knit you together in your mother's womb. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That his works, that's you, are wonderful and you've got to know that full well. That God has a plan and a purpose for you. And one of the worst things that you could do is try to be anybody other than who God created you to be. That God breathed his ruah, his pneuma, his spirit, his breath into you. So that you could live a life that brings him glory and brings you joy. And if, you ever, and if you ever try to be anybody other than God, who God created you to be, then you're defaming his name. He doesn't need another me. He just wants you to be you. If he didn't want you to be you, he'd kill you, squish you, to be a greasy spot in your seat because he'd be done with you. But if he woke you up this morning, it's because he wants to receive glory and for you to receive joy in being who he created you to be. So if you're a two-talent person, then you do the most with what he has given you. That's why it does you no good to, to compare yourself to other people. And when you find good and godly people that, that glorify God and honor him, yes, you emulate them like 1 Corinthians 11 one says, follow me as I follow Christ. But you be you. That's who God has created you to be. And so the two-talent guy gets this. Verse 24. It says, he also who had received the one talent came forward. Now, if this was a movie, the theme music would change right here. You know, it'd be like, dun, dun, dun. Here we go. And so the, the man who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now, he kind of tells on himself here. The one talent guy goes, Master, I know your character. I know your heart. I know what you would have done with the one talent. So I know who you are and I know what you're all about. Verse 25, so I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground here, have what is yours. So the other two guys, he says to them, well done, my good and faithful servant. The other two guys are full of faith. Faith produces action. This guy's problem is he's full of fear. And the Bible says perfect love drives out fear. And I've talked about this often, but it's really, really important. That the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. 
Faith leads us to action. Faith leads us to, to step out in faith. We walk by faith. We get out of the boat in faith. We, we, we move in faith. But fear paralyzes and fear causes us to freeze up. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. If you have doubts, I mean, just how many of you have doubts? I got some doubts too. All right, good, good. If you have doubts, you're gonna, you'd make a great disciple. All of the disciples had doubts, all kind of doubts. And they were never chastised for their doubts. If you have doubts, let me tell you what you do. Pick up your doubts and follow Jesus. Just pick up your doubts and follow Jesus. And if you really have a lot of doubts and quit, quit believing your doubts and doubting your beliefs and start doubting your doubts and believe your beliefs and pick them up and follow after Jesus. And when you die, you're gonna be in heaven. And guess what? You won't have any more doubts. Nobody's gonna come to you in heaven and be like, what do you believe about Jesus? Man, what do you mean believe? He's sitting on the throne right there, worship. That's what you do forever and ever, amen. No more doubts. On this side of heaven, all kind of doubts. A lot of stuff I can't figure out or understand. It's okay, follow him, follow him, follow him. But fear, the Bible says, perfect love drives out fear. That he has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And so this guy, he, it's all about being afraid. And so what he does in fear is God gave him $1 million or God gave him this one talent. And instead of stepping out in faith and doing with the talent what the master would have done with the talent, what he does is he goes and he hides it because he is afraid. And so here's what happens, verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. There's our word, slothful. Now, if you were the attorney for the one talent guy at this point, you could say, I object, your honor. My client is not slothful. My client is not lazy. I have been watching my client since the day you gave him the talent and you left town. And he is not slothful. He is not lazy. The day that you left, he went to work. And he has been working his fingers to the bone. And he's been digging and digging and digging. And you have yet to create the credit card yet in the first century. So a million dollars in like shekels or denarii or, you know, a little coin, that's a big old bunch of money. Do you know how big a hole you have to dig to get a million dollars? I mean, we're talking about this guy by hand dug out a a swimming pool size hole. And then he filled it up with dirt and he had to cover it with some shrubbery and stuff so nobody would find it because he was so afraid that somebody would find it. And when he heard you were coming back into town, he had to go out and dig the hole again, dig it all back up, get it in wheelbarrows and deliver it all back here to you. This man has been busy, busy, busy. But the problem is, Jesus says, you wicked and slothful servant. You see how you can be busy and lazy? You can be busy in the things that are comfortable. Doesn't take a lot of risk to dig a hole. But you can be lazy in the areas that require you to step out in faith. And so here's the verdict. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So you know what he says to him? Here's your problem. It's not about the money. It has nothing to do with a million dollars. I just made seven million on these other guys, all right? This million is not that big a deal. I didn't even lose it. I still got it. It's not about that. Here's the problem. You know who I am. You know my character. You know my integrity. And so since you did not act in accordance with me, it's evidence that I am not your Lord, but you were Lord of your own life. And instead of doing the master's will, will all, your, all you care about is covering your own assets. And so you went and you dug a hole and you hid it there because you're just trying to cover yourself instead of walk by faith in me. 
this doesn't, this doesn't get you kicked out of heaven. It's just evidence that you've never surrendered your life to the lordship of the master. Verse 28, and so, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So not because, not because the guy didn't do what was right, but it was evident by the way that he was living that he wasn't surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he wasn't surrendered to the ways of the master. And then from this point, what Jesus is gonna do, he's gonna go into the really popular part of Matthew 25, and he says, so here's what you do for the rest of your days. You leverage everything you have for the least of these. Whatever you do for the least of these brothers of mine, you have done unto me. So here's the point. The point is this. Do not busy yourself with the comfortable in order to avoid stepping into the faithful. And a lot of us get really, really busy with the things that we're comfortable with, like digging holes and hiding money in it. And we avoid stepping out into the faithful where God has called us to walk and to move and to live and to have our being. James, back to Jesus' brother, he says it this way. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. And here's what I think about, about our church, about many of us that will worship here this weekend. I don't, know, I don't think there's a lot of slothfully lazy people in here. I think that there's a lot of selectively lazy people in here. That there are some of you, and you know what the right thing to do is. That God has given you five talents or two talents or one talent. He's given you certain abilities, relationships, your family, your parents, your job, the, the, whatever it is, that God has given you certain finances, certain degrees of success, and then called you to do something significant with it and with your life. And instead, you were afraid. And so you got to work being busy digging holes instead of walking in the faithfulness that God has called you to do. And so James says, if you know, if you know the right thing to do and fail to do it, for you it's sin. My wife Gretchen for years and years and years, was, we're living in sin. And none of us would think of it in those terms, except for what James says here, that for years and years and years, out of fear, she took the talent of singing that God had put in her, and she dug a hole, and she hid it. And you know why? Because she was afraid. And about, I don't know, a few years ago, I just was like, babe, you're going to have to do this. You need to, you need to sing. You need to lead worship. You need to audition for the band. And you know what? In fear, she would say, she, she straight up, she said, I don't think I'm good enough. And I go, well, quite honestly, if you're not, Ben will just tell you. All right, that's just the kind of guy he is. I don't know if he doesn't realize it'll be that offensive or I'm not sure exactly how that works. But if you do, it'll be awkward for me and him for a little while, but that's okay. And then she began to buy into this lie. Well, the only reason they'll let me do it is because you're like the boss and they'll have to let me. And you know what she was doing? She was just taking this talent and just digging a hole and, and hiding it there. And here's the thing, but she was very busy. She was busy doing all these other things in the church. Like wherever I was serving, that's where she was volunteering, leading groups and all this kind of stuff, all right? And essentially, did you realize that her busyness in volunteering in our church was sin because she wasn't doing the right thing that God had told her to do? 
And so on this side of it now, I mean, the way she leads us in worship, we've got all kind of talented people. I don't know all their backstory, but I know for her, for her to show up for that first audition, it was a huge step of faith. I mean, I, it, you know, I'm quoting submit verses in the Bible to make her show up, which is a terrible idea to do, husbands. Don't ever do it, but I'm the preacher also, so. Huge step of faith. And, and, and two, she's just such an introvert. I mean, one time she legitimately asked me, she says, hey, you think it'd be weird or do you think it'd be okay if I led worship from like behind the curtain? I was like, nah, babe, you gotta be out here with us, like in the room, you know. You can't be like a blues traveler video. Everybody's gotta be out here and we gotta, you know, see what's happening. So it's a big, big deal. And on this side of it, you think, oh, it might not be that big a deal. But I'm telling you, when she first decided what to do with that talent, it was a big step of faith. So do you see how you can be busy in the things that are comfortable? But you can be sinfully lazy because God has called you to do something and you're running from it because you're afraid. And I think there's a bunch of us this way. I think, fellas, there's a lot of you, and, and ladies too, that are busy at work and you're lazy with your family. But husbands, this is mostly us. That you can go get so busy at work and then be so lazy with your family. And there will be a day where you will be held accountable for what you did with this family that God has put under your leadership. And I know why you're busy at work because it's so comfortable. I mean, you're the boss and they treat you a certain way and, and you have measurables and every quarter they're like, here's what went well, here's what didn't go so well, here's how you can improve. And if you're the boss, the way you get treated at work, I mean, you got like a name tag, and you say, do this, and people start doing stuff. And then you go get home, and you say, do this, and everybody's like, whatever, all right? I know. <laughs> and I struggle with this, too. I mean, this is where I work. You know how I get treated here? I'm Pastor Joby. I walk in the room, and people are like, I look busy. You know, they start getting to work. I never do it. When I walk home, I never go home, and people are like, Pastor Dad's here, and, you know, hi, Dad. We were just reading the Word before we pray. <laughs> no, you're just home. But listen, you should work hard. You should work hard. You should do all your work as unto the Lord. But if you're doing that at the expense of your family, there will come a day you'll be held accountable for that. Quit being busy at work and being lazy at home. Listen, guys, if you got little kids, when you pull in that driveway after a long day of work, then it's second shift. You're on the floor. You're helping wherever she needs help. You got it? I mean, that is, one day you will be held accountable for that. God, God decided of all the parents in the entire world, he believes that you have what it takes to raise the, the ones that he's given you. It's a big deal. Um, students, there's a bunch of you. There's a bunch of you that are busy with your social life and you're lazy with your schoolwork. I mean, you're so busy making sure that you know the right people and you get invited to the right places and checking everybody's status and retweeting and all that junk. And here's the thing, and you, some of you are being lazy with where God has you right now. And here's, here's why I say this. Because your laziness today in your schoolwork could actually shut the door on God's plan for you 20 years from now or 10 years from now. That, that God might call you to be a doctor and you can't get into med school because you're a lazy 10th grader. That'd be ridiculous. And here's the thing. Those friends that you care so much for right now, I want you to have relationships. But when you can't get into school, they ain't going to be there. They're not going to be there. And so, yes, have healthy friendships, but, but don't let your busyness with the social part of your world right now be an excuse to be lazy in what God has called and commanded you to do for the long time. You should honor God in the way you work in school. Um, moms, there's a bunch of you, and you're busy with the kids, and you're lazy with your faith. I mean, you are busy with the kids, 
And I know it's tough, you know, and you're trying to get them cleaned up and presentable and the hair going right and all to the right place. To all You kind of feel like taxi, running taxi and you're clean up. You got all so much going on, but you're doing it at the expense of, of, of your relationship with Jesus. And you're just being lazy in your faith. And it's no excuse. It's no excuse. It's a high honorable calling to be a full-time mom. Yes and amen. All right? But that's a no excuse to be lazy with your faith. Because you know what your kids need more than being on time for dance? They need to see mama loving Jesus more than anything else. And so don't, be, don't get all busy in that world. And then not, not take the time that you need to cultivate that relationship with Jesus. Now you can say ouch or amen, but I know it's true. There's a bunch of us that are busy with social media and lazy with actual friendships. I mean, you post and comment and click like and retweet and all that on everything going on. But the last time you got eyeball to eyeball and nose to nose and knee to knee with an actual human being and talked about heart matters, you can't remember the last time. But you look busy because as soon as I post something, you comment, boom, 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 like, 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 like. But the problem is nobody likes you. They like your comments, but they don't like you because you actually got to like be with somebody for them to like you. And you can be busy and, and yet at the same time lazy. Um, some, of you are, some of you are busy with everything else and just lazy with your church. I mean, you got time for every vacation and every trip and every hobby, but you don't have time to serve at your church, the place that introduced you to Jesus, the place that is discipling you to be more like him, the place that if the wheels fell off in your world that would come rushing to your side... And yet you're too busy with all your vacations. You don't have time to go on a mission trip and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I guarantee you, I want you to go for you, for you, not for me. And yet you get so busy with all this other stuff on your calendar that you don't have time to go to work here. And then some of you, or us, this is a tough one. Man, a bunch of us are busy with our hobbies and lazy with our wives. I mean, we were so busy with our hobbies and yet lazy with our wives. I mean, some of you fellas, this month you spent more time on your bracket than with your bride. You were more disappointed that Duke lost than you were that, that you know, you didn't take your wife out this week or whatever hobby it is. Some of you work on your swing more than you work on being a husband. Let me just tell you this. You're not going to be that good at golf. You understand? If you ain't on the tour now, give it up. I know one kid that might be. He should play a lot. The rest of you, enjoy it, but don't let it rule your life. You know how ridiculous it is when I go play golf with you, and I'm, I, I'm actually better. Not physically better. I hit it about 20 more times than you do, but I enjoy my four and a half hours more than you. You're sick. <laughs> and so we spend all our busyness on these hobbies. Like you're obsessed with the surf report. Like, you know exactly, you know the wind direction and, the, and when the swell's coming and how many days it, it's going to last. And yet, you don't know, like, your wife's favorite restaurant. Yeah, you look busy, but you're lazy. You know, turkey season started this weekend, so let me pick on me. I usually just like to pick on y'all because it doesn't hurt me as bad. So, there's no excuse. I, I can't know when the turkeys gobble and where they roost and where I should set up. And I did kill a nice one Saturday. But I can't know all that stuff, what call to use and when to use it and all of that. And know all that information about a turkey and not know my wife intimately. That's ridiculous. Fellas, a lot of us are busy with our hobbies. 
It's because we've never grown up and we've been lazy with our wives. Listen, if you're a married man with kids, you get one hobby. You don't get multiple hobbies. When you're single, you get five. You get married, it goes to three. You have kids, they go down. Each one you get, boom, boom, you got one hobby. Pick it. Ladies, your husband ought to be able to enjoy one, but that's all you get. You get one. Choose wisely. Amen. Unlike spattering applause. All right, here's one that really fires me up. Young men, young men, like 18 to 28, you're you're busy being a boy and you're lazy in becoming a man. For all of human history, save the last 100 years, there were only two classifications of male. There were boys and there were men. And there was a very clear delineation between boy and man. You either went to war, you went to work, or you married a girl. And then about less than 100 years ago, this new thing came along called, called adolescence. And it was just delayed boyhood. And, and we went from boys and men to now we have this new category called a guy. All right? And it's just, it's not a boy, and it's not a man. It's a guy. It's just like a boy that can shave. A boy that can afford his own Xbox games. And let me tell you, a lot of you... And I'm talking about a lot of you that are very involved here and a lot of you that that participate in a lot of our activities and those kind of things. And you love Jesus, but you're a boy. You need to grow up. You need to get a job. You need to move out of your mama's house. And you need to pursue a woman and marry her. And you need to become a man and quit being afraid and hiding what God has given you. And you need to risk it in faith and you need to lead like a man. Listen, fellas, um, uh, Girls want to marry a man and make babies. They don't want to marry a baby and try to make you into a man. So it's time to grow up and be a man. And I'll tell you where it hit me. On Valentine's Day, uh, I was taking Gretchen out to dinner, and so I had somebody come and watch JP and Reagan. And so it was a single girl. And so I invited her to come over and watch her kids. You know, I took Gretchen out, and then uh, she said, hey, can some of my friends come over? Sure, no problem. And when we get back from our date, our kitchen is full of single girls, right? All these single girls. And I walk into the kitchen, and I go, girls, I feel so sorry for y'all. And they said, well, great, we felt bad enough about ourselves because we don't have dates <laughs> on Valentine's Day. What do you mean? And seriously, I said, no, I don't feel sorry for you individually because you girls are incredible. I mean, you're beautiful, and you love Jesus, and you're talented, and, but there's a problem here, and I don't really think it's you. I'm sorry that you live in a generation where instead of fellas pursuing you right now on Valentine's Day, they just leveled up on World of Warcraft, and that's where they're spending their time. And so, men of 1122, young men of 1122, all right? Rumble, young man, rumble. Get up, get off your butt, get a job, a career, and then pursue a girl. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. By the way, we're doing a 10-week series on love, sex, dating, and everything like that. Song of Solomon coming after Easter. Young men, be here for every one of them. <laughs> Lastly, next to last, is sometimes you can, get, you can get busy at church and lazy with the Lord. Church activity is no substitute for your relationship with Jesus. Now, here's the, here's, here's the scary one for a lot of you. A lot of you have just been busy at being busy. You've been busy at being busy, and you've been lazy with the, the vision or the talent or the thing that God has given you. That at some point in your life, God planted in you a dream, a calling, something that you knew you should be doing, and you were afraid, so you went to, you went to getting busy digging a hole and hiding that instead of walking in faith. So the question is, are you lazy? I know you're busy, but that's not what I mean. Are you lazy? Are you too busy with the comfortable 
and you've avoided stepping out into faith. What is it that God has given you? What are the talents that God has given you? What are, what are you afraid of? Here's the question I love to ask. Um, if you could do anything, I mean anything, if you could do anything and you knew you wouldn't fail, what would you do? And when you understand the answer to that question, then my next question is, then why aren't you doing it? I bet the answer to that question has something to do with the talents, the vision, the gifting, the ability that God has put in you. And if it's because you're afraid, that's not from the Heavenly Father. That's from the enemy. Do not be afraid. Not because you're awesome, but because he is with you. Do you know what I would do? If I could do anything in the world and I knew it wouldn't fail, you know what I would do? I would plant a church in Jacksonville for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. You, on this side of it, you might be well, that's easy. You already did that. Well, I know it seems easy on this side of it. And if you would talk to the man that made the five million after he made it, you'd be like, well, sure, you should have invested. Good call. But don't you realize on the front end of it, when he's risking it all, what a risk and what a faith step it was? So on this end of, you know, today's our 18-month birthday, anniversary, whatever, okay? We've been a, a church for 18 months. Woohoo! But here's the thing. So is it going well? Oh my gosh, exceedingly well. Did you know next month I'm speaking to church planners on how to ter- plan a church? I, I, I'm going to tell them. I did it by accident. I didn't mean to. I don't know. <laughs> so yeah, looking back, safest thing I've ever done in my life. Wouldn't change it for the world. It's incredible. It really is. I love this church so much. I love who we are, who I get to work with, who you are, who we're becoming. I love it. I love our worship. I love our staff. I mean, I just love this place. I love it. Two years ago, when, when, when we just had good intentions and prayers and we didn't know exactly what we were going to do, you know what the safe bet would have been for me and my family? The safe bet would have been this. Because of my resume, because of the success that we had at the, church, at the service 1122, the safe thing to do is not to try to start a new church and plant one in Walmart. The safe thing to do is to take the talent, and I don't even believe I'm that talented of a speaker, but I can't deny what God has been doing. I'm telling you, I think it's moderately delivered, exceptionally received. Something happens right here at the steps where God anoints it and then God just does stuff, okay? So the safe bet would, would be for me and my family would have been to just apply at another church, to just be the teaching pastor at some big old church and, and do what I'm comfortable doing, which is teaching the Word of God. The problem with that is, is that I knew that the right thing to do, I knew what, what Jesus had called me to do was to plant a disciple-making disciple church in Jacksonville, Florida. And, and I know, I know now that it's happening, it seems easy, but the first time, and imagine the faith of the staff that said, come with me. Hey, I don't know what I can offer you. I don't know if it's gonna work. I mean, you know, here's, here, here's a salary. It's not even fake. I just wrote it on a napkin. It's not even real yet. We haven't even taken up an offering, okay? We might lose it all. I don't know. Where are we going to do it? Walmart? Are you kidding? We walked in here. And it didn't look like this. It looked like the end of a Terminator 2 movie. You understand? People were like, I don't see it. I'm like, I know. Follow me. Are you? That's how it was. <laughs> you know what the driving force behind it for a lot of it for me was? Is I didn't want to look back at the end of my life. If God blesses me with 40 or so more years. I didn't want to look back then and wonder wonder what would have happened. 
I wonder what would have happened is if instead of taking the safe bet and going somewhere else and still preaching and doing good things, I wonder what would have happened if we'd ever planted that church in Jacksonville. Because here's the thing. I just, I remember reading Acts 5 and Gamaliel's advice and thinking, all right, if this thing is of me, it, it'll fail early. But if it's of God, you won't be able to stop it. And if I strike out, I don't mind striking out. I strike out all the time. But I'm going to strike out swinging for the fences so that one day when I look back, there'll be no regrets. There'll be no regrets. Even if I go before the master and say, hey, you gave me five talents. I lost it all. I'm sorry. But I bet it all because I thought you were going to come through. And so I'll, I'll do my part based on your faithfulness, based on your faithfulness. So what about you? What about you? If you could do anything and you knew it wouldn't fail, what would you do? And if you're not doing it, why not? Last thing and I'm done. Just one little section. Proverbs 24, 34. Or 24, 30 to 34. Solomon, smartest man to ever live, wisest guy to ever live, says this. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw, and I considered it, and I looked, and I received instructions. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So what field has God put you in charge of that you've been neglecting? That if God were to walk by or if we were to walk by and say, hey, listen, you've been busy doing everything else except tending to the field that God has put you in charge of. Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it a dream that God has planted in you to do something for the kingdom? What is it? What is it? Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't be busy in the comfortable things and lazy in the faithful things, but walk by faith. Step out in faith because he believes that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of his son and through a relationship with your heavenly father that you have what it takes to do with what he has given you for his glory and for your joy. Would you stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious heavenly father, God, I thank you so much that you call us to do things so much bigger than we can do on our own. That it grows our faith in you because we know if you don't do it, it doesn't happen. God, we look forward to the day. We look forward to the day where we hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. So God, I pray for men and women and students in this place right now, and they know the right thing to do. Lord, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give them the strength and the ability to do it. God, I pray that you would unleash dreams, that you would just, you would just drop down visions of what people in this room right now, people watching online right now, people in video venues right now, what you have called them to do, and by the power of the blood of the Lamb, God, you would empower us to do these things. Not so that we earn your favor, God, but because you already love us, and that one day we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. And listen, we respond every week. We respond, if you're a regular, by bringing your tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around the room or the giving kiosk back here. We respond by joining our voices together to sing. And there's a lot of you that need to respond because you know the right thing to do and you feel like there's some hurdles in your way. And you come and you cast all your cares upon him at the altar because he cares for you. Let us respond.